0: Hello and welcome to Better Construction with Sean McStay, the podcast where we discuss design and construction techniques, products, and details that lead to a better built environment. All right, and welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of Better Construction. This week, I'm very happy to have with me Ian Schwant. Ian's a a graduate of the Carpentry Apprenticeship Program at Southeast Wisconsin Training Center in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He's been working uh, for a number of years now as a carpenter in the Hudson Valley in northeast United States. Interested in high performance, certainly, net zero uh, insulation strategies, and he's a certified PASFOS tradesperson and published author in the Journal of Light Construction. So, Ian, welcome to the show. great to be on. I always like to start off these interviews with you kind of talking to the listeners a bit about how your journey in construction began, um, how you kind of got to where you are and and where your kind of interest in high performance or, um, you know, net zero type construction
1: started. Sure. I started as a laborer for a lot of different small one-man operations or small family-run companies doing a Wide range of different things from masonry to sheetrocking and drywall, and just found that I really liked the carpentry end of it the best, which led me to take the full apprenticeship with the Carpenters Union in Milwaukee. Uh, Through that Carpenters Union apprenticeship, got a wide range of training on both commercial and residential ends of the spectrum. Uh, Started off my career mostly running pretty good-sized commercial jobs for hospitals and schools and entities like that. But after the 2008 slowdown, started to get back more into the residential side of the business, you know, mostly by necessity, doing things like flipping houses and small-scale remodeling. Uh, for a while in the uh, early 2000 teens, I had my own business doing architectural woodworking and for various reasons decided to go back to working for a company as opposed to being self-employed. Uh, ended up with Hudson Valley Preservation. They're out of Kent, Connecticut, and through them got involved in NESE, uh, Northeast Sustainable Energy Association, which led me to things like yes tomorrow's Net Zero program and eventually getting my certified passive house tradesperson uh, certification at the end of last year. So for
0: you, was construction and, and carpentry always kind of an interest for you? or is that how did that kind of develop for you as a young person?
1: I think like a lot of people in the area I grew up in in uh, central Wisconsin, you know, most of us tried college; didn't work for everybody, and a lot of us ended up in building trades—electricians, uh, plumbers, bricklayers—and for some reason, I really enjoyed the building aspect of carpentry, and that really grew once I had the apprenticeship and got exposed to the the wide range of different things that you can do once you are a carpenter.
0: Yeah, great. Now I've definitely heard that from people that it's not always necessarily kind of planned that they get into that. But once they're into it, they realize that it's it's very interesting for them. In your articles, you talked about kind of uh, talking to young workers and, and talking about the trades as an option for them. That seems to be a kind of a passion for you. Uh, talk maybe a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, it definitely is. I, I had a lot of really good mentors when I was young that That showed me that the trades can be a path to a good living Uh, and then it can take you to a wide range of of different areas and I've worked in many different states on many different types of projects and I think it's important that young people today know that this is a business and a career path that can take them to a multitude of different places I see that a lot with the high performance building community. I think the high performance community and, and Passive House are way ahead of general construction with bringing in young workers and getting them excited about uh, the trades and the type of work that we do.
0: Switching gears a little bit and talking about your article and the kind of the concept behind it, you call it a worker centered crew maybe start with that what what in your mind is a worker centered crew and why is that so important i think it has
1: a lot to do with the mindset of not just the the lead in the field but also the company i went at length in my articles about the triangle of obligations and i think too often we see the crew not getting the time it needs to develop that crew into not just an asset for the company but developing that Crew into uh, tradespeople who can work autonomously and go through the necessary steps of of thinking the whole process through. Uh, that was one of the things I really liked about the Passive House training program that I went to last year. Is that they really stressed thinking through all of the different products and different assemblies and and the layers of products that go into producing those assemblies and that fit really nicely with my idea of the the worker center the worker centered crew since the workers are the you know they're the boots on the ground developing the projects and doing the work uh, i see them in particular needing more attention than they're getting from from a lot of uh, crews and companies that I've been around in the last 15 years.
0: And so when you say triangle of obligation, maybe explain for the listeners a little bit what who's in the triangle and kind of how that's formed.
1: When you're running a job in the field and you're either the superintendent or a lead carpenter or foreman, whatever title somebody wants to give you, you have an obligation to the company that you work for and that can be through understanding the estimate, purchasing materials in a, in a thoughtful and reasonable way, and then also running the crew so that the crew can produce work. Those are all things that you have an obligation to your boss, oftentimes the owner of the company. And then you have an obligation to the client. The client has hired your company to build their project, whether that's a, a small bathroom or a remodel or a multifamily passive house project you have an obligation to the client which sometimes you get to work directly with the client other times you're working for a representative of the client like an architect or an engineer uh, but that doesn't really change your your obligation to uh, build the product for the client and thirdly you have the obligation to your crew I believe that we in the field have an obligation to also teach the crew the trade. Most often in my area, guys are getting crews that skew much younger, or even people who are making a, a midlife career change, or maybe a, a non traditional, you know, blue collar crew guy that might fit the, uh, the stereotype of people in the building trades. But we have just as much of an obligation to that crew as we do to the owner of our company and the client who we're building the project for. So oftentimes we're gonna have that crew with us for months on end on a project, or if we're a small company that keeps everybody busy, we may have that crew with us for two years. And then we're really on the front line of of teaching those crew members, how to work efficiently, and and how to be tradespeople.
0: Okay. So with the triangle of obligation, then you have kind of the project lead is right in the middle. Exactly. And so you have a client on one point, the employer... The crew. And so it's really kind of a balancing act. How important in that balancing is communication or what are some of the ways that you try to kind of keep that balance using uh, proper communication? I,
1: I think communication is is key for the lead who is, as you put it, in the middle of the triangle to make sure that that they're meeting the needs of, of all points. The company I'm currently with, we have uh, company-wide management meetings every two weeks Uh, we like to have client meetings uh, every friday oftentimes our clients are new york city weekenders so they're not necessarily on site Uh, so one thing that i like to do is through various technologies whether it's uh, facetime or just emailing pictures we like to keep them on top of all the progress Sometimes the progress is just demo or framing, and it's not very interesting to them. But oftentimes, you'll be able to bring a client through the project, even though they may have never set foot inside the work area. They might only be coming up on a weekend, or they might not come up at all while you're there. But it helps them understand the process, and that communication is really important for the, for the client. And I think the communication aspect with the crew tends to be a little bit easier because we're there with them working during the day, which I believe can lead it to be overlooked at times, uh, which is why I think there, uh, the crew itself often is the, the forgotten point as the pressure is usually being applied by your, uh, client who needs something done by a specific time, or your employer who you know, maybe wants to to make sure we hit a certain finish date or an estimate cost. Uh, it, it's hard for the crew to put pressure on you unless you can train them to know when they need to come to you for more information. We like to do training before we start a new task. Uh, that's where I met Jay from Sega. Came out and uh, did some uh, membrane training and some tape training with us before we we started doing a rain screen detail, which at the time was a first for the company that I was working for. Uh, so anything like that that we can put in front of the crew before we start working to try and eliminate mistakes uh, is a really positive. Uh, experience for the crew
0: and so that kind of leads into the next section that you talked about in one of your articles where you talk about setting clear goals and objectives Um, as kind of the the center in that triangle how do you typically you know make sure that those goals are clear to everyone and the objectives everyone's on the same page
1: one thing I like to do is share the project schedule with the crew so that the crew also knows In two weeks, we should be moving on to framing from demo so that they have those benchmarks in their mind, which once the crew members get more comfortable with the work and gain experience, that can help them in their work methods. Especially if I, as the lead, can't be on the project for a few days, Uh, it helps them understand uh, where the job is going and, and their part in helping it get there.
0: So let's talk about the relationship between a uh, project leader, head carpenter, and the employer. You talk a lot about kind of building trust and, you know, trust, and, but, you know, trust but verify. All. How do you typically build that over time, especially with maybe a new relationship?
1: I think that changes definitely between the person and the company. Everybody has their their own way that they're going to run work. Companies have their own um, their own methods for selling work and developing projects in the office. Uh, I've worked for companies that they like to completely develop, inspect the project in the office before it ends up in the hands of the lead, and the lead is brought in. Uh, very much right at the end of that development before the work in the field starts. Uh, I prefer to be involved uh, early on from the estimating process and through the, uh, the product specifications. I think it makes my job a lot easier to know the ins and outs of the project. Uh, and I, I've had good experiences with developing trust between myself and an employer by being willing to be involved early on in that process. I think most employers, they see the value in the lead knowing that extra uh, little bit about the project before it starts. Things like Sega, you guys have a a lot of different tapes, different membranes, and even, even leads. Many times are seeing those for the first time. You know, they may have never done a self-adhered membrane, so they don't know the, the different steps that you're going to have to take through the framing, through the demo process to make those those items work. Uh, and I think that's where once you have that trust with your employer and they're giving you access to that information early, uh, it certainly helps the leads job. And it helps the lead teach the crew early on so you're not there at that uh, zero hour of we need to do it right now, we need to get it done, but also trying to teach whether it's a new material or maybe it's uh, it's a new way we're going to flash windows with a new product. Many times by being involved earlier, a lead who has a lot of experience can point out well, maybe this isn't the right product for here because of these existing conditions that we've run into on the project and can affect some some change that will add efficiency, just end up with a better product in the end, especially in in remodeling when you have some unknowns that you're taking a house apart and trying to use new materials in in an old house.
0: Yeah, that definitely makes sense to me. Do you have any other tips for kind of creating a worker-centered crew that we haven't talked about?
1: The big thing I've found is developing a level of engagement with your crew and developing that atmosphere where it's okay to make mistakes. Too many times guys get worried about wasting some material or uh, maybe putting a, a detail together wrong. But if you, if you can create the structure on your crew where guys, one, know to ask you if they have a question and that having questions is expected when you're doing uh, a wide range of high performance details, which can get difficult and, and can get hard to understand until you've really gone through the process of... Of executing the work uh, and it, it's important that tradespeople know that there will be mistakes but that the mistakes are there to be learned from
0: and so with learning um, you talk a lot about lifelong learning what are some of your tips there for people whether they're a lead carpenter or just a you know a, a starting out carpenter in the field for continuing that learning process kind of as they progress throughout their career
1: there's so many different options out there. I'm still wired to enjoy going to conferences and taking classes, but I've had many crew members who that's not really the way that they want to learn. They want to take information in somewhere else. I've got a lot of guys that we send YouTube videos to of how different assemblies go together, you know, the, the learning in the field is important to reinforce those uh, videos and and reading. And there's a lot of different class things out there that that guys can take. I think the the Passive House Training Program for tradespeople, whether you're working for a company that does a lot of Passive House stuff or a high-performance builder, there's some great things in those classes that you can take away and plug into your everyday building production homes. There's a lot of good details that you can learn uh, through taking those classes. But I think it's important for young tradespeople, especially to know that this is a trade and a career that requires uh, a lifelong dedication, and that there are many different ends of it. Sitting in a timber frame barn, now there's a lot of People that do uh, timber framing in this area, some of them also do high-performance building. And on the surface, they're they're two very different types of building, but it's good to know that there are the the multiple career pathways uh, that you can take in the building trades.
0: And so one question I always ask my guests at the end of the interview is, uh, because I collect books, I love books. Uh, What is kind of the book that you would recommend
1: to people the most? I'll go with a a book from a teacher who I took a class with at the uh, ICAA in New York City. Uh, It's a guy named Steve Bass. He's an architect there. And he wrote a book called uh, Beauty, Memory, Unity, which is a book about how buildings were designed Uh, You know, long ago, going back to uh, Roman and Greek architecture, things like the Pantheon, uh, and he goes through the simple geometric methods used to design those buildings. Uh, And I've gotten a lot out of just being able to look at a structure and understand the underlying geometry uh, within that. You know, even to the point of where windows should be located on a, on a gable end wall. Uh, it's a it's very interesting geometry that, that underlies the uh, correct aesthetic layout. And he, he nails it pretty well in that book.
0: Yeah, that sounds awesome. All right, Ian. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with me today and being on the show. For everyone listening, I'm going to go ahead and put Ian's uh, links to social media and stuff in the posts when I post this episode. Uh, In the meantime, I appreciate everyone for tuning in. And Ian, have a great rest of your day.